This is the Jocko Underground Podcast number 19 with Echo Charles and me, Jocko Willink. Good evening, Echo. Good evening. All right, so last week I posted, or maybe it was last week, I mean, it was a few weeks ago. A few weeks ago I posted something from Gettysburg where I was talking about the indirect approach yeah. to things. Yeah. And the specific thing I was talking about is that in the Civil War, in, in the Battle of Chancellorville, Stonewall Jackson convinced General Lee to take that, that he should take the indirect approach in this battle. He should take his troops and walk 14 miles to get to the flank of the Union mm. instead of just doing a frontal assault, which was a half a mile. So either go right at him, go right at the Union Army, or come in from the flank after doing walking 14 miles. Mm-hmm. He was able to convince General Lee to do that, and once they had the flank, they won the battle very quickly with minimal casualties. So this is the indirect approach, and I was talking about the fact that it works with people, and you should use it. 99% of the time, it's the better approach, and it might seem like it's gonna be harder because it's longer, but ultimately it's more efficient and it's more effective. Mm-hmm. And then as I looked, you know, as, so I posted it, whatever, no big deal, and looked at some of the comments that people wrote, and you know, most people were like, yeah, absolutely, makes sense. And then that some people, wrote things like, it's not good to be deceitful, and things like, you shouldn't lie to your teammates, and if you aren't direct, that'll hurt the trust that you have. So they made these kind of comments. Mm-hmm. And I understand. I actually understand their misunderstanding, because there's a difference between leadership and manipulation, right? It's, it can be seen like, oh, I'm just manipulating you. And mm-hmm. one of the big differences between mani- manipulation and leadership is if, when I'm when I'm leading you, I'm getting you to do something that's good for you and good for the team. If I'm if I'm manipulating you, I'm trying to get you to do something that's good for me, yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. So that's one of the differences. But let me break this down a little bit. Being direct with someone, and that's the term. Like you should be direct. If you're not being direct, that's the term that they use. You should be direct with people. And there's a synonym. A synonym for the term direct, which is truthful. Like, hey, just tell me the truth, or hey, just tell me direct, right? So there's a little synonym there. So therefore, if I say be indirect, that must mean that I'm talking about lying. Mm. And so I can see that you can extrapolate and get to that conclusion that what Jock was saying is be indirect, so he's saying lie, and that's Mm. not what I'm saying at all. Not what I'm saying at all. And if the way I mean it and the way it, it is intended, And the way it works is not by lying, it's by, look, if I'm talking to Leif, and if if I'm trying to get him to use a plan, or I'm trying to, we're trying to establish a plan for an operation, being indirect with him doesn't mean that I'm gonna lie to him. It doesn't mean I'm gonna make up like intelligence reports that are wrong just so so we go with my plan. It doesn't mean that I say, hey Leif, you know I already ran this up the chain of command and it's already been approved so we're going with my plan. Like those are lies and that's not what I'm talking about. It doesn't mean I make up a timeline and say, well you know the target's only gonna be there for tonight so we have to go tonight so we have to follow my my plan. Mm -hmm. Like those are lies and that's freaking absolutely not what I'm talking about. Mm -hmm. Direct would be Leif, Here's the mission, and here's the plan. Get on board with my plan. That's direct. Mm. Being direct, yeah. right? 
what does that impact have on Leif? Well, now Leif is being like, feels like he's being micromanaged. He feels like he has no input. He also feels like he has no ownership of the plan and all those things are bad. And when something goes wrong, it's not gonna turn out well and he's not gonna do his best to push through and make things happen because it's not his plan. He doesn't have ownership of it. Mm. So all those things are bad. The indirect, so, so that's being direct has a bunch of negative aspects to it. Yeah. Being indirect, if I take an indirect approach, I, I, I tell Leif what the objective is that we're trying to accomplish and then say, hey, how do you wanna do it? And I listen to his ideas and I have him present a plan to me. And then I ask earnest questions that might reveal some shortfalls of his plan if there are any. All these are indirect, right? All these are indirect. Yep. And it's not, it's also not like, a, um, I'm not faking it. I'm not asking him these questions. I'm not allowing him to influence me with his plan to get him to do something. No, I'm actually, if he's got a good plan, I'm gonna go with it. Mm-hmm. By the way, if he comes up with a better plan than me, we're gonna use it. There's no, there's no lies, there's no manipulation. It's truthful. Mm-hmm. The truth is, his plan's better than mine. I'm gonna go with his plan. Sounds good. The truth isn't like, I'm not lying to him like, well, your plan won't work because the intelligence says and I make something up. That's a freaking lie and that's not what I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. That being said, if my plan is better and I ask Leif questions and he sees that, that maybe a different idea would work better, I'm, that, then it becomes revealed to him and it's more powerful and I'm not having to impose my plan on him. The direct method of imposing my plan on him and offending his ego and implying that I don't trust that he can get the job done because I'm imposing my plan. Like if I trusted him, why don't I just let him use his plan? I'm implying that I don't trust him. So there's all these freaking negative aspects and I don't like it. And also, I've been talking about for the last six months, especially on EF Online, listen, influence, trust, and respect. To get these things, you gotta give those things, right? You want somebody to listen to you? Listen to them. You want somebody? To, you want to influence somebody? Allow them to influence you. You want somebody to trust you? You have to trust them. You want to get treated with respect? Then treat other people with respect. You can't impose trust on someone. Mm-hmm. In fact, when you try and impose trust on somebody, I'm gonna, this is such a good example. I'm trying to sell you a car and I say, hey, just trust me. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I'm trying to impose trust on you. Does that increase your trust for me at all? The answer is no. Uh, I can't demand respect from someone. Doesn't work. You better respect me. Does that work? How often do you go, okay, great. Okay, thanks for telling me. Cool, now I respect you. And influence. Forcing influence on someone because you outrank them, that's not influence, that's just freaking orders. That's what that is. So, and the last thing is I can bark at you and I can yell at you, but does that make you listen to me? No. I mean, you might hear what I'm, you might, you might, you might, the word, the the, the noises might go into your ears, you can hear it, but you're not necessarily (laughs) going to listen. If I want you to listen, you have to listen to me. So that's what I mean by the indirect approach. And there's actually, I don't know if there's there's the the founder of the indirect approach, and this is a guy. Listen, um, I owe so much. I owe so many podcasts on this guy, B.H. Liddell Hart. He is a incredibly influential soldier, historian, writer, philosophy. And what's scary about him is when you start digging into his work, you start. Like I have his books, I've got I've got some of his books, but he's got books on books on books, 
and you go, oh, you know, that sounds like a short title. You know, the battle of whatever. Mm-hmm. 318 pages. And you're like, bro, <laughs> this is insane. And it's over and over again. Yeah. But I got a bunch of his books and he's got a book uh, uh, that's a book on the strategy of the indirect approach. And the name of the book is The Strategy of the Indirect Approach. And, and I don't want to dive too deep into it, but this, the way he wrote this, it, it, it's very important. Um, I'm going to go to it. And this is the preface. So this is a preface in this book. It says, my original study, and, and like I said, this guy was a soldier in World War I. This guy had a lot to do with the, with the initiation of the indirect approach and maneuver warfare. And he had all, his books are incredible. I've got, I've got a bunch of his books. We'll get to them, but I don't know when we're going to get to them. We'll get to them. I, I, what I'm thinking about doing is doing some chunks, doing some like, okay, here's the high points, and that's a little bit of what I'm going to do here. His preface is so strong. My original study of the strategy of the indirect approach was written in 1929, published under the title The Decisive Wars of History. It has been out of print for some time. In the following, in the years following its publication, I continued to explore this line of thought, and from the results of such further study, compiled a number of supplementary notes, which were privately circulated since the course of the present war has provided further examples of the value of the indirect approach, and thereby given fresh point to this thesis. The issue of a new edition of the book provides an opportunity to include these, and he talks about some of the things that he includes, and then he says, when in the course of studying a long series of military campaigns, I first came to perceive the superiority of the indirect over the direct approach. I was looking merely for light upon strategy. He's just looking for he's just looking for clarity about strategy. And he started to realize that the indirect approach was better. This is so good. When deepening reflection, however, I began to realize that the indirect approach had a much wider application, that it was a law of life in all spheres, a truth of philosophy. You see what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. I mean, that is legit. Truth of philosophy. Legit. Its fulfillment was seen to be the key to practical achievement in dealing with any problem where the human factor predominates and a conflict of wills tends to spring from an underlying concern for interest. So anytime you got two, two different people with two opposing viewpoints or two opposing views or they're misaligned on their agenda, what they're trying to achieve, you need to use the indirect, of, um, the indirect methodology. In all such cases, the direct assault of new ideas provokes a stubborn resistance, thus intensifying the difficulty of producing a change of outlook. This is what I've been saying for so long. If I attack your ideas, you're going to get defensive. And it makes, what does he say? It makes, it intensifies the difficulty of producing a change of outlook. Conversion is achieved more easily and rapidly by unsuspected infiltration of a different idea or by an argument that turns the flank of instinctive opposition. Can you imagine like how smart this is? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's so well put. It's so well put. It's so well put. The indirect approach, or sorry, in commerce, in commerce, the suggestion that there is a bargain to be secured 
is far more potent than any direct appeal to buy. Now, me telling you this is a good deal is better than me saying you should buy this. Mm. And in any sphere, it is proverbial that the surest way of gaining a superior's acceptance of a new idea is to persuade him that it's his idea. Again, this is leadership strategy and tactics. Mm. The book that I wrote, I ripped this off, I guess, from heart. As in war, the aim is to weaken resistance before attempting to overcome it. And the effect is best attained by drawing the other party out of his defenses. The idea of the indirect approach is closely related to all problems of the influence of mind upon mind, the most influential factor in human history. Anytime it's mind against mind, this is the most, which by the way, mind against mind is the most influential factor in human history. My mind versus your mind. All problems of influence, this is the, the way to go. Yet it is hard to reconcile with another lesson, and this is where this gets back to what we opened with, that the true conclusions can only be reached or approached by pursuing the truth without regard to where it may lead or what its effect may be on different interests. So he's saying you should pursue the truth. You should pursue the truth. That's what you should be going after. So he's saying this is like a contradictory thing. Wait a second. How, does, how do we reconcile these two things? Tell the truth and search for the truth, but use an indirect approach. He's saying what these people were saying in the comments on the gram. <laughs> right? History bears witness to the vital part that the prophets have played in human progress which is evidence of the ultimate practical value of expressing unreservedly the truth as one sees it. So there's people that are prophets. I mean, there's religious prophets, but there's also prophets in industry. Mm. There's prophets in technology. There's prophets in ideas, right? People that come out. Mm. And he's talking about that, and he says that the evidence of the practical value of expressing unreservedly the truth as one sees it You can see this by looking at what happens to the prophets. It becomes clear that the acceptance and spreading of their vision has always depended on another class of men, leaders who had to be philosophical strategists striking a compromise between truth and men's receptivity to it, right? So look, I might have the truth Mm -hmm. and I might be right, but if you're not willing to accept it, what good is it? Their effect has often depended as much on their own limitations in perceiving the truth as on their practical wisdom in proclaiming it. The prophets must be stoned. That is their lot and the test of their self-fulfillment. So what happens to prophets? They get crucified. Mm. They get told to shut up. But a leader who is stoned may merely prove that he has failed in his function through a deficiency of wisdom or through confusing his function with that of a prophet. Mm-hmm. So if you're a leader and you got an idea, it's not, your, it's not your bidding to go out and say this is the truth and get stoned for it and get killed for it. No. If you're a leader, that's not your job. You're confusing yourself with a prophet. Mm. That's what the prophet's going to do. The prophet's going to go out and say, look, if you want to kill me, kill me. But this yeah. is what I believe. And you're yeah. going to get killed. You get stoned. Yeah. You get crucified. You get burned at the stake, whatever the thing is. Mm-hmm. Time alone can tell whether the effect of such a sacrifice redeems the apparent failure as a leader that does honor to him as a man. At the least, he avoids the more common fault of leaders, that of sacrificing the truth to expediency without 
ultimate advantage to cause. For whoever habitually suppresses the truth in the interest of tact will produce a deformity from the womb of his thought. And what he's saying right there is that you you can't suppress the truth. You can't change the truth. Or it's gonna perform a it's gonna produce a deformity in the womb of your thought. Your thought's gonna be wrong eventually. Mm-hmm. It's gonna be deformed. Mm-hmm. So you have to stick to the truth. You have to stick to the truth. Even though you're gonna do the indirect method, you still have to stick to the truth, which is exactly what I just said when mm-hmm. I was talking about talking to Leif about a mission. Mm-hmm. And then he says this, is there a practical way of combining progress towards the attainment of truth with progress towards its acceptance? So can we, can we combine talking about the truth and leading towards the truth with progress of the truth being accepted. That's what we actually want. Mm-hmm. A possible solution of the problem is suggested by reflection on strategic principles, which point to the importance of maintaining an object consistently and also of pursuing it in a way adapted to circumstances. Opposition to the truth is inevitable, especially if it takes the form of a new idea. But the degree of resistance can be diminished by giving thought not only to the aim but to the method of the approach. So there we go. This is it, right? Opposition to the truth. When you tell the truth, the opposition is is inevitable, especially if it's a new idea. If you come with a brand new idea, people are going to reject it. That's the that's the nature of the world. But the degree of resistance can be diminished. You can mitigate that that resistance by thinking about not only the aim, which is I want to tell the truth, but also how are we going to take the what's the approach. And then he says straight up, avoid a frontal attack along established on a long established position. Avoid a frontal attack on a long established position. Instead, seek to turn it by flank movement so that a more penetrable side is exposed to thrust the truth. But in any such indirect approach, take care not to diverge from the truth for nothing is more fatal to its real advancement than to lapse into the untruth. So he's saying what I was just saying. And he said it first, look, I'm not, you know, good for him, right? <laughs> yeah, good for him, sure. The meaning of these reflections may be made clear by illustration from one's own experience. Looking back at on the stages by which various fresh ideas gained acceptance, it can be seen that the process was eased when they could be presented not as something radically new, but as a revival in modern terms of a time-honored principle or practice that has been forgotten. This is a, such a good thing. This, is, this required not deception, but care to trace the connection. And here, here he brings it, since there's nothing new under the sun. A notable example is the way that the opposition to mechanization was diminished by showing that the mobile armored vehicle, the tank, the fast moving tank, was fundamentally the heir of the armored horseman and thus natural means of reviving the decisive role which cavalry had played in past ages. So I'm gonna get into this in some future podcasts. We've got a book that's coming up that's I've been reading and researching for a while. but. That's the type of new idea, the tank. When the tank came out, people were like, we don't need a tank. Mm. It, it uses gas. It, you know, it's like it's slow. It, 
and and major like generals and leaders rejected it because it was new. Mm-hmm. And one of the ways they convinced them is, well, it's not. It's the same as cavalry. It's mm-hmm. just you know a modern version of cavalry. Oh yeah, well that's true. So you didn't really you didn't really invent this. Right. It's just the same thing we've always been doing. Yeah, I already knew this. Yeah, yeah. So. That's it. That's the preface to this book, and I'm sure we'll cover the book of this book. The, the book is very. This a lot of his books are just analyzing battles, mm-hmm. analyzing wars, and they're very interesting to read, and they give a lot of great lessons. Um, but you know, this is this will probably make up. I mean, maybe we do. A, I don't know. Maybe I start a new podcast that's just about sure. you know Liddell Hart. Why not? Right? Here's mm-hmm. what we're doing. We're do, we're creating podcasts left, right, and center. Apparently, around here. <laughs> Um, with that, it is the underground. So <clears throat> let's get to some Q and A. It is true. All right, first question. This question is not meant to highlight one side is more right than the other. Obviously, every American has their belief, but this question is not about whose side is right and whose side is wrong. About to be a heated question, I think. <laughs> <laughs> right now in America, we have politically charged climate where each side hates each other. Each party has deep distrust and skepticism and all-around cynical view of the other party, for the most part. Lots of Well, pe- that's, a, he says in parentheses, the most part, but where are you getting this from? Well, you're getting this from if you go look, look at social media, right? If you go look at yeah. social media, and even, not, not just social media, media. Mm-hmm. Because the media wants you to watch what they're making and you only want to watch what they're making if it seems a little bit exciting and the only thing that's exciting is emotions and hatred and chaos. So that's what we're selling. So that's what's clicking. And I work with companies all over America all the time and the companies are out there making things happen and the workers, you know what they're concerned about? You know what the employees are concerned with? You know what the leadership is concerned with? They're concerned with improving their market share and delivering good stuff to the to the consumers. That's yeah. what the vast that's that's most people. That's for the most part. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. and that's a critical point right yeah. there. Easy to forget too, yeah. by the I way. I have to explain this to people all the time, especially, you know, uh, talking to Ben Shapiro. Yeah. Like in his mind, it's mayhem. Oh, yeah. Because that dude's at point blank, you know, uh, ground zero yeah. for political Activities yeah. and thoughts and Hostile. comments and hostility. He's he's ground zero. He, yeah. That's all he sees all day long. Oh yeah, I can't even imagine what the world looks like through his eyes. No, bro, it's falling apart. And even then, even Ben Shapiro, Candace Owens, you know mm-hmm. these. Even then, it's the majority of it, if not all of it, is from the internet or the news. Oh yeah, you know it's and it's that's the way it looks. You know. Um, when you look at Rachel Maddow, it's the same thing. She's at ground zero for all this stuff. So it doesn't matter. You can pick your ground zero, and the way the world looks through their lens is like freaking total mayhem. Oh, yeah. Total freaking mayhem. Oh, yeah. And what do they talk about? They That's what they talk about is total freaking mayhem. Oh, dear. So yeah. this individual that's writing this question, they're looking at the world and going, oh my God, I got Rachel Maddow on one side and I got freaking Sean Hannity on the other side and that's and the world. Chaos. Yep. But okay, so. let's try, and in, in, in the spirit of that, just try to maybe start from a place of more accuracy, if even possible. Mm-hmm. I don't know. We all live different lives. I get it. But yeah, let's say you exclude that. Let's say you exclude any political news mm. and then exclude social media in the internet okay. thing, okay. exclude that. And then when you go outside, you go to work, mm-hmm. you go to the store, mm-hmm. post office, jujitsu, mm-hmm. lifting at yeah. the gym or whatever. Yeah. 
bro, there's nobody yelling in your face. <laughs> I thought bro, you were going to say there's, no- there's someone yelling. I was like, bro, we just, there's, you know, a thousand people at Victory MMA and Fitness. I haven't heard anybody talk about oh, yeah. any of this stuff. Yeah. Oh, yeah. In fact, like, y- you can drive on the street and you can see, like, someone's bumper sticker. Yeah. I support Biden or I support Trump or whatever. And you're almost like, bro, calm down over there. We're <laughs> over here just kind of crazy, you know, and you're over here representing. The thing is, it doesn't. Everyone has a right to do that for sure. But I'm saying that's how mild it is in real life outside of the internet yeah, <clears throat> where yeah. you can see someone expressing themselves and they seem out of place. Yeah. That's how it is in real life. Quote unquote. Again, depends on where you live. Depends on what you do for a career. If you're Ben Shapiro, you go to yeah. the office and the guys in the, you know, it, mm-hmm. I get it. But day to day, man, I don't know. It, this simply doesn't seem true outside of the internet. Yeah. But we'll, let's continue with the question. Right, I cut right. you off. Cause it doesn't mean that it's not true. Yeah, it just, it, obviously just, there are parts of the, parts of the, the <clears throat> world and parts of the country on those two left and right flanks that are freaking fired up. Yeah. And in regard in each party has deep distrust and skepticism and also the thing is the internet is a real part of life. That's the thing. Yeah. So yeah, people are fired up. That has a lot to do with the internet, but <laughs> at the yeah. end of the day, they're fired up. Yeah. You know, so, okay. So we'll see the question. Okay. So the question continues. Lots of people in these parties assume the worst of, the other and do not fill information gaps with trust and not just the politicians themselves, but also the American population. Obviously these are bad dispositions to hold and have already produced violence. The last year in America has been crazy and violent for a myriad of political politically charged reasons. The question I have is, do you foresee a civil war in America anytime in the near future? And if not full blown civil war, perhaps pockets of conflict here and there across the country. We've already seen things such as autonomous zones, which have become militarized and violent and almost and almost seem like a succession. So uh, that's a that's a logical question right now. Um, you know, you're seeing all this like 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 we just talked about. You're seeing all this extremism yeah. on the left and on the right. And you think, well, geez, if that's what's happening, could we could we be heading for a civil war? Uh, first of all, we've been through a lot worse. A lot worse. First, I mean, the actual civil war. (laughs) You know, we've been through an actual civil war where hundreds and hundreds of thousands of Americans were killed. Going, so that's a a, the huge example. But I mean, even you go back to the late '60s, early '70s, and you had the Weather Underground and the Black Liberation Army and the Sibianese Liberation Army and the Black Panthers on one side. You had COINTELPRO from the FBI on the other side. I mean, it was crazy times. Police were being assassinated in the streets. Mm -hmm. Like thirty or forty police officers were assassinated in the streets. And most people, A, most people don't even know that right now, and B, like we completely survived that. Mm -hmm. I I mean, so, and then on top of that, we we have a high level of comfort in this country. We have iPhones, we have Starbucks, we have cars, we have Wi-Fi everywhere you go. There is a lot of comfort, and there are not too many people that are willing to put down their Starbucks and their iPhone to pick up a rifle and risk their lives. Like what, are, what are they gonna risk their lives for? Right? They literally have a, a, a Starbucks coffee latte with cream and sugar, and they have an iPhone with Wi-Fi HGT whatever they got that going on in the and now they're gonna put that down mm-hmm. to go and fight 
for what what do they need? I mean, when you get a civil war, there's got to be a major there's got to be a major discrepancy between the two sides where one side is looking at the other side going, "Hey, they have everything and we have nothing." And Sure, you can say, well, you know, there's a huge amount of rich people, 1%, the 1% here owns all this stuff, and we, you know, I barely have anything. Mm-hmm. But barely have anything is a lot different today than it was when, you know, 100, 100 years ago or 200 years ago when you're like, wait a second, I don't have anything, I'm going to fight, I'm gonna, we're going to go take it, yeah. like the French Revolution. Right. Yep. That's the interesting thing about the American Revolution is the American Revolution is one of the few revolutions ever where the people that led the revolution actually had stuff. They had they were property owners. They were they were people with money. They weren't poor people that were going. You know what? The the government the man we're going to take him out. Mm. So. I don't think, I think it's very unlikely. I think it's very unlikely. I think that the, I think that the, the standard of living in America is high. And people, look, you want to have a revolution? You want to talk about having a civil war? People have no idea what that means. And when they start to find out about it, they realize that ain't what we want. When we break out into the autonomous zone, we go, oh shit, this sucks. Yeah. We have no idea how to run a freaking country. We have no idea how, we can't even feed. We have to get like supported from the outside. This is stupid, we're stupid. Yeah. There's no one, there was no one in the autonomous zone that was willing to die for the chop or the chaz, right? There's yeah. no one in there that was like, hey, this is what we're doing. Yeah. It doesn't exist because, because when you look, look, you can nickel and dime America and be like, well, this should be better. And there's all kinds of things in America that should be improved. But the way to improve them isn't revolution because then you're throwing the baby out with the bathwater and every anybody there's no way a a a massive movement could could there be some small some small groups of people like you know Timothy McVeigh yeah right yeah. who bombed the federal building in Oklahoma he was a guy that wanted this revolution to happen right yeah and that's a guy that took an extreme measure. But are you going to be able to get thousands and thousands and thousands of people to think, hey, this is worth fighting and dying for to make this particular change? Yeah. When actually what we're sitting in right now is not all that bad. And look, we can say, look, like, like I said, we can say there's all kinds of, you, you can say there's, there's things in America that are bad that should be improved all the time. Of course. Yeah. Right? But there's not too many people. I don't think you're gonna get a vast number of people that are gonna say, yes, I'm willing to sacrifice my life, my comfort, my iPhone, and my Starbucks. They yeah. won't even stay, they won't even sacrifice their iPhone and their Starbucks, much less their, their damn life. life. Yeah. That's why I think it's not very likely. Now, the only but I have on this is we have, you still have to pay attention to it because you have to remember what happened in the Soviet Union. You know, it started with the Kulaks, and the Kulaks are bad. And then the the name Kulak used to mean a very specific small group of people Mm -hmm. that we had to get rid of. It was people that owned property and abused workers. And that, that term expanded over time to pretty much mean anyone 
that had ever owned property, that owned anything, that made any money, that did anything positive, and they rooted those people out and sent them to the gulags and destroyed that country and murdered tens of millions of people. So that started small. So do we have to pay attention? Yes, we do. We do, you have to pay attention to make sure that there are checks and balances in place. I personally believe that the best checks and balances are iPhones, Starbucks, and the comforts that we have in this country. Yeah. And food, by the way. Oh, 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 and food, by the way. Yeah. Which there's not starving people in America. Like, you want to have a revolution? Cool. We can't eat anymore. Then we yeah. start fighting. I mean, let's face it, Americans, back in the day, <laughs> like, we're like, oh, wait a second. You're going to raise our taxes on tea? We're going to fight a war over this, right? Those days are gone. Yes, I think so. Those days are gone. <clears throat> yeah. Yeah, they're, uh, what was this? I don't know. It's one of these things you see on the internet, by the way. Um, this is like the first time in history where like the, the, the po- impoverished are overweight. Yeah. So that's an indicator. Look, is that proof of this or that? That's an indicator that, hey, man, it might not be that bad if even at our worst as a country, like our worst scenarios, we're, we have an abundance of food. It's a beautiful thing. Yes, sir. I mean, it's not a beautiful thing for people to be morbidly obese, but it's a beautiful yeah. thing that they're not starving. Yes, exactly right. I prefer that. <clears throat> yeah, and of course, this is generally speaking, because I'm sure there are yeah. people starving, stuff like that. Yeah, but so yeah. There's, a, there's a lot of things. I mean, you break down, like even I mentioned the 1%, but when you actually look at what the 1% pays in taxes, and you say, hey, we want to take all the way from, we already are taking a lot from them, like 50% <laughs> of what they make yeah. or more. That's what we're taking from them. You want to take more than that? Yeah. That's it. Then you start saying, wait a second, we're only taking 50%. Maybe we should look at what we're spending a little bit. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So, so there's a lot of things. What I think would be we need to watch out for is like who's going to do radical. There could be radical actions that we need to watch out for. A Timothy McVeigh yeah. from the right. Yeah. Uh, a uh, black liberation army from the left type thing where we start going out and we're assassinating p- people like right. those kind of things we need to watch out for those kind of terrorist attacks from small groups of people that want to instigate bigger events yeah. in Iraq the 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 Shia the Sunni and the Shia they did some gnarly things to each other and a lot of it was just to incite further attacks on each other and try and turn the whole thing into a civil war yeah. Like they would bomb the Shia mosques. The Shiite would bomb, the, Sh- the Sunni would bomb the Shia mosques. They'd, they would do things that were total violations in trying to just devolve that situation into a full on civil war. So we got to watch out for those kind of things. We got to make sure that we don't get emotional when they happen. They're going to, ha- they're, they're likely going to happen. Yeah. But we can't forget what these things lead to. Yeah. So, yeah, civil war seems like, damn, that's, to go full civil war on something or even like even in any significant area, it seems like you didn't have to do that. Like there's no reason to do that. It's kind of like, um, you know, like when you're a kid, and you're like, I'm going to run away from home. Mm-hmm. You know? yeah, 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 yeah. And then you run down the block and then like the <laughs> sun starts going down. You're like, oh, damn. Yeah, that uh, was like the know. autonomous <laughs> zone. They're like, we're going to start our own country. Then they looked around. They're like, wait, mom, can we have some food? <laughs> Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, eh, it feels like something like that a little bit, but it's a matter of perspective, right? Where it's like if you lack perspective, you're only on the internet all the time, and you're like, "Dang, this is this is injustice," and yeah. I'm gonna go and you know. I bet when Timothy McVeigh bombed the federal building, mm-hmm. and then all of a sudden everyone's like, well, uh, 
what did you just do? He was kind of like, uh, wait a second. Weren't we going to have a revolution here? Then you read the Turner Diaries, which is like a book mm-hmm. about that whole. No, the Turner Diaries is a book about this sort of like, I want to say like a white nationalist revolution that takes place. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it starts with some big event. And he had a copy of it or had read it or something like this. Mm-hmm. And so he's thinking that that's what's happening. Yeah. And he's like, cool, I got this. I'm going to yeah. kick this thing off. And yeah. there you go. And he looked around like, wait a second, isn't anybody going <laughs> to? And you know, I was I like, we, bro, he's like, calm I down. We, I, wait, I thought we were having a revolution <laughs> thing. And, and so that's what we need to watch out for. Yeah. It's people that get in that echo chamber where they think that everyone's on board and this is what's happening and they just need to kick it off. Yeah. That's a scary thing. And you know, we're, we're, we're making light of Timothy McVeigh's mindset, but he killed hundreds of people in that building and little kids too in the nursery there. So it's, uh, it's something we, we need to pay attention to. And I think importantly, people need to start having conversations yeah. instead of just uh, surfing the internet and sitting in their echo chamber and turning up the volume, by the way. Yeah. Turning up the volume in the echo chamber. Oh, yeah. Yeah, the, it, getting out and, like, doing something, and this is a whole other thing, but getting out, you know, like I mentioned, like, jujitsu or whatever. Like, if you're into stuff that's, like, beneficial to yeah. your life, you're like, bro, I don't have time for that freaking Facebook argument. <laughs> I don't have time for that kind of stuff anymore, you know? If everyone did jujitsu, we'd be in a way better scenario. Oh, yeah. Way better scenario. I agree. Next All question. Right, next question. I have been on deployment for the past five months. Gets and, I, and have had the opportunity to reach to read both extreme ownership and the dichotomy of leadership during this time. I have also listened to many of your podcasts and excerpts from others, oftentimes while in the gym, during my workup, and still to this day, I've noticed some red flags within my chain of command that I'm not sure how to further address as a young Marine NCO. Without, without, without going into detail, one of my concerns includes mission critical information being held by my NCOIC for me and my team holding information from it from me and my team that we do not learn about until it's too late to assist in making timely decisions. Other issues that have been verbally addressed with this individual include tardiness, unprofessional behavior, and blatant lies, including included in monthly sit reps. I've I've brought the aforementioned concerns to higher to higher higher ups, to which their response is or was to ignore them. I understand my aspects of control and influence as an NCO are limited when dealing with individuals who are of higher rank. However, the lack of integrity throughout the command is discouraging for myself and my peers. Many thanks. All right. So this is an interesting one. And I, I, I appreciate that you read Extreme Ownership and the Dichotomy of Leadership. And I grab leadership, and ta- leadership strategy and tactics. I hate to say that because it's like. But the reality is there's a lot of these types of issues that are covered in leadership strategy and tactics. Um, so here's what I'm going to say, and this is a very, I'm going to start off by saying you need, to, you need to think strategically. You need to think strategically. Because this is a, winning a tactical fight against people that outrank you when it seems like you have a command that is a little bit off the path that is a little bit that is not doesn't seem to be doing things the way they should be done so you being a prophet which we talked about earlier like you being the prophet that's like the truth is you might get crucified yeah 
And and that like there's you know you you get crucified and you get to hold up your head and say I stood with my values and and guess what you don't get you you get kicked out of the Marine Corps you get you don't get promoted you get uh, filed away in some back corner where you don't get any influence anymore mm-hmm. so there's all you you might feel like good you won tactically but strategically you're gonna lose so you need to start off by thinking strategic. Build relationships, and I know this is crazy to think. How can you build relationships with people that are, you know, not performing the way you think they should perform? Well, let me say this: if they're not performing the way you think they should perform, and you don't have a relationship over with them, you have no influence over them. So therefore, you're not going to get them to change because they don't like you, and you don't like them, and they know that. So why would I listen to anything that you're going to say? So you want to build relationships. You want to find some common ground, whatever that might be. And it can be challenging. And listen, there's also the the thing that we need to be careful of because you don't want to do anything that's unethical or immoral or illegal. So if there's things that are happening like that, you need to be very cautious in how you prevent yourself from being complicit in those types of behaviors. But... You know, the crossing the line is like all of a sudden do you become a whistleblower? And then as a whistleblower, how much influence do you have? You might stop this one situation, but now you're, you know, again, you're forced out of the Marine Corps. You're in the whistleblower protection program and you have no influence over the Marine Corps anymore. So do the right things the right way. Build relationships. Here's, you know, on the ethical thing, like, are the things that are happening going to cost people their lives? Like, hey, your NCO is late. Is anyone going to die because your NCO is late? Like, okay, if you're on deployment and there's missions happening and he's not doing his duties, that's different. But, like, he's late. He's, quote, what is it, unprofessional behavior? What does that mean? Does that mean he looks like crap in his uniform? Like, he's not getting anyone killed. And I'm not trying to minimize it because we're professionals. But those are the kind of things you need to ask yourself. Like, okay, wait a second. There's, he's my NCOIC, but you know his off, the officer is probably checking to make sure he's doing things right, or at least it's stopping anything from totally insane happening. So build relationships, do the right things, make sure there's nothing that's totally out of line. Make some look. I'm, I'm not telling you to like sneak around and keep a notebook, but to document some things that are happening so so that if it ever comes to a point where you need to present your case, you can present your case, right? So, so just document some things that happen. Document things that happen that are bad. And, not, you know, again, keep this in a safe place, you know, encrypt it somehow. But you should document when things are going wrong so you can present it if something goes awry or things blow up completely, which we're trying to perfect. I mean, we're trying to prevent. We're trying to prevent things from blowing up. When we have a blow up like that with our leadership, it doesn't help our team. It doesn't make us more mission capable when everyone hates each other or when we're whistleblowing or when we're getting guys fired. When a platoon sergeant gets fired, it doesn't help. It may help the platoon ultimately, but that's in an extreme case. Most of the time, it's just drama, and we are doing our best most of the time to subdue drama. Make sure your world is perfect. All right, so what you're doing, you got to make sure your world is perfect. And that doesn't mean that you sit there and put it in everybody else's faces. It doesn't mean you rub it in everyone else's noses that you're, you're so perfect. But you make sure your freaking world is good to go.
It sounds like maybe you're building some relationships outside your chain of command. That's a smart idea. Outside your immediate chain of command. Other platoons, other, you know, with the senior leadership of the company. The senior leadership of the battalion. Who's there? Who can you, you know, who can you get to know? What sports are they doing? Are they training in the gym? Can you ask them some questions? Are they doing jujitsu? Are they, you know, out there lifting weights and you could join a PT with them? How can you build a relationship with some other people so that you get some outside perspective and also, if it comes down to it, some outside support? Here's another big question from a strategic perspective. How much time does this individual have left? What are you, you're five months into a deployment. That means, hopefully, Marine Corps, that means you probably have a month left. Six-month Marine deployment is pretty standard. So you've been putting up with this crap for five months. you got another month left. And that's the beautiful thing. It's a good thing and a bad thing about military. You get a bad leader, it's, you, it takes you f- six months or a year to figure, or it takes you six months to figure out that they suck. They do some crappy things and you go, oh, this guy might be a knucklehead, but we can chain him and we can teach him and you do your best and all of a sudden they don't get there and now it's been six months of, six months of figuring out, yes, they're definitely an idiot. Six months of trying to get them to not be an idiot. Six months of saying, you know what, we should document this stuff. Now we're looking at a point where we got five months left and he's gonna be gone anyways. So what kind of drama are we going to create right now? So usually in the military, it's like a two-year tour as a leader, and then you're gone. And and you know we used to look at the officers at SEAL Team One back in the day, like you're you you're you're just here, for, you're just renting, man. We own this place. <laughs> <laughs> so if there's not that much time left, what are we going to actually do about it? And then be smart. Listen, this individual is senior to you. This individual has leverage. This individual has, can probably make it worse for you than you can make it for him. There's a really good chance that he can make it worse for you than you can make it for him. And so now you're getting into a battle that you're not going to win unless you go nuclear and you bring out freaking recordings of him abusing the people. And you're going to go there. If you're going to go there, sure, you can win that, but you just drop nukes. And we're not looking to drop nukes on each other. And by the way, if you have a relationship with someone and you listen to them and they listen to you and you influence them and they influence you and you treat them with respect and they treat you with respect, you can have a lot better, you have a much higher percentage of making them perform and become a better human and a better Marine than if you are in an antagonistic relationship with them. Play the game. Then no one wants to hear me say play the game. No one wants to hear me say that. They want to hear, you take the, Jocko, you say take the high ground, it'll take you. I'm taking the high ground on this bastard. (laughs) Right? Mm. It's a war that you're going to get into. Is it a war that you can win? These are the questions you need to ask yourself. Think strategic. Think strategic. Where are you going? What do you want to do? You know what? You might be in a crappy platoon right now. It happens. And it's good that you're identifying it. And if you stay in the Marine Corps and you get a good evaluation from this guy and from the platoon commander and you get promoted, you can get to a position where you don't let this stuff happen. And that's freaking awesome. Or you can create some chaos and mayhem and not, and this guy will give you a bad eval. And it'll be his word against your word. And he's a senior guy. And so what are we doing? So think about all these things. I know I'm not giving you 
a specific answer. What I'm trying to give you is a frame of mind of how you're going to approach this problem. Think strategic. Next question. How do I deal with the fear of blood? I recently witnessed a dune buggy flip multiple times after taking a turn at over 40 miles per hour. So several of us ran over and flipped it back upright. However, when I saw the amount of blood on one of the passengers, I had to step away and let the others help her while I helped with the other passengers. I just couldn't be around that much blood. Whenever I see blood or injuries, my heart begins to race or my heart rate begins to rise and and I can feel the panic coming on. Maybe it's because I'm empathizing with the pain they must be in. But what if next time there's no one else to help? I never want to be in such a situation again and be frozen like that. Classic exposure therapy. This is what, you know, this is the solution. This is what um, I wrote about in a way of the warrior kid. One, he's afraid of water. Mm-hmm. Got to go look at the water. Then mm-hmm. you go step in the water. Then you go up to your knees in the water. Then you go up to your waist in the water. Then you dunk your head in the water. Then you walk out and lift your feet up off the ground and you're floating. You put your feet back down mm-hmm. and you do classic exposure therapy. Jordan Peterson, psychologist, actual professional at this, explained it with a little more detail. You need to expose yourself to these things with what you feel comfortable with. If you force yourself to go and freaking watch pigs get slaughtered right now and bleed everywhere, you're gonna freak out and it's gonna make it worse. What you wanna do is you know, find a little drop of blood or a little tiny, you know, watch a video or look at a picture of a blood being drawn. That's what you do. Mm. Or you look at a book that, the book, in the book, there's a picture of blood being drawn. And you look at the book and you say, I know there's pictures of blood in there. And if it freaks you out, walk away. Cool. Mm. But if you can look at it, be like, okay, I'm comfortable with that. And then a couple days later, you actually open the book to the page with blood being drawn. You go, okay, shut it right away. That's okay. Mm-hmm. Don't freak yourself out. Don't go too hard on it because that makes it worse. You don't take, so here's the analogy. If Echo's scared of the water as a kid and I go, cool, exposure therapy, and I throw him into the pool, <laughs> into the deep end, cool. and he freaking sinks to the bottom and freaks out, mm-hmm. and I drag him up, is he better now or worse? He's worse. So don't do that to yourself. Classic exposure therapy, start to expose yourself at some level. You could probably get a psychologist to help you um, or someone, get, get a friend of yours to help you. Not a, not a crazy, abusive friend that yeah. likes practical jokes because no, that no. could get, you know, <laughs> we could be watching scenes of The Shining real quick with elevators yeah. opening up and blood pouring everywhere. But classic exposure therapy, man, a little bit at a time, get comfortable with it and you'll get used to it. What you'll realize each time, you'll see the book of with blood pictures in it, you'll see it and you'll be like, oh, I'm not scared of that. Mm. Okay, I'm cool. And the next day you go, oh, I actually look at a picture. Oh yeah, it's not that bad. And then eventually you, you'll just do more and more blood exposure and you'll get used to it over time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that always makes sense. Uh, here's a non-professional, uh, I, I, it's, it's barely even a suggestion, maybe just an idea, because this worked for me, like overnight. So when I was young, I was 12, shot my hand and I shot myself in the hand with a BB gun. Check. Not following the <laughs> rules of gun safety at all. Nonetheless, it happened. And that BB went under, like it went through th- into my hand and underneath the tendons got lodged in there. So they couldn't just kind of, you know, numb it. And what they tried to do first is they numbed my hand and then tried to get these, um, 
what do you call it, the tweezers mm-hmm. that, that are they can extend in there and mm-hmm. to dig it out just without putting me to sleep or nothing, just not my hand, right? Didn't work. They couldn't find it. Couldn't. So anyway, long story short, three surgeries I had to get gradually more intense surgery. The first one was that one. The second one was like, okay, what kind of – but – when you have a BB, a, a, what are they made of copper or whatever mm. metal, you mm. constantly got to get blood tests uh, like for, or do you have any kind of, you know, infection or anything like that from the, from the item that's mm-hmm. in your hand. So at 12 years old, it made me scared of needles straight up just because it was all the time poking all the time. Oh, and not to mention my last successful surgery when they did the IV, it was like a new nurse. And then the nurse couldn't find the vein. Mm. And she's with that IV thing, pricking me, pricking me, 12 years old, by the way, pricking me, pricking me, I'm crying, all this Mm. stuff. Nonetheless, when I'm done, scared of needles. And it lasted for like years. So anytime you go to the doctor or whatever, they need to test your blood or whatever, freaking needle part is flipping me out, you know? Until you were what, like 13 or 14? (laughs) (laughs) No, no, until like... (laughs) Twenty, <laughs> adulthood, adulthood. Not what down you, for needles. No, no, no. It wasn't the kind where I'd like visit. Phys- there was no physical like look, like I'm uh, not, oh, but in, I, internal panic. Yes, internal panic. My heart rate. I'm like, oh my gosh, oh my god. It was like a thing. I had to like get into the state to endure it. I couldn't look. You know, it's like that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And but here's the thing. Here's what I realized at one point. I'm like, hey, I'm a grown man, mm-hmm. and I work out, and I do the, you know, think I'm whatever. But I'm scared of this one little needle that when you really think about it, it doesn't really hurt. A no, needle, like getting blood tests or whatever, even IV, it doesn't hurt. No. I get massages that hurt worse than that. I'll tell you, lifting weights, the burn when you lift hard, squats, hurts way more than a blood mm. test. Factually, right? So yeah, I'm like, well, what's up with me? Like, what's my problem? And I'm like, frick, I'm telling myself that I'm scared of needles because of my experience. Like I'm like almost taking on that identity of I'm a guy that's scared of needles. I I just don't like needles. You know, that's just who I am kind of a thing. I'm like, wait a second. Let me not think like that. I don't care about needles. How about that? That's who I am. I don't care about needles. I'm just like my mom and dad. When I see them get blood tests, I'm like, okay, it's blood tests. I'm whatever. Let's do it. Whatever. So I'm like, all right. So next time I got a blood test, I don't know, whenever it was, uh, here comes the needle. I see that thing and I could still feel a little bit of nervousness, but I told myself like, oh, I actually don't care. I'll actually look and they'll do it. And it's like, oh, damn, I cured myself just by flipping how I thought about it. Cured myself. Echo Charles. I'm not saying that he's going to be like, hey, mind control. Telling, tell I like yourself, it, <laughs> tell yourself I'm no longer scared of blood. And then the next incident is like, I'm, and then traumatize yourself. So I don't know if mm-hmm. it's going to work, but that worked for me straight up. And, uh, you know, I don't know. I like maybe, it. maybe not. Direct. Is direct. All right, next question. I'm sure you've heard this quote before, and it's and it's and it piques my curiosity, particularly in a discussion about atheism and not foxholes. There are no atheists in, the, in foxholes. Have you noticed? Have you noticed yourself or others around you searching for something beyond atheistic beliefs in combat? If so, did you or others revert back to your original beliefs once returned? To a comfortable lifestyle do soldiers do soldiers who have faith in the afterlife under north american values have less fear in battle is this an advantage or liability in a team setting so this is a a, a question that what we do here is we assume that soldiers are sort of this unified group of people that all have the same thought process do soldiers who have faith in an afterlife under North American values have less fear in battle, right? Well, North Americans and Americans 
the soldiers are people. Yeah. That's what they are. So there's no universal value that they have when it comes to their belief system. Whether they're, the, you, you know, you go to a any military unit and you're going to get all kinds of different people with all kinds of values. There's no consistent North American viewpoint or American viewpoint on any of this because we got some atheists in there. We got some Christians, some born again Christians. We got some Jewish people in there. We got some pagans. You know, we, you got it all. And so, so I don't think that that has an effect on people's fear or lack of fear in battle. What I think has the biggest impact is if I think the people that do well in battle accept death. I'm not saying they look forward to it, but I'm saying they accept that it is a major possibility and they're okay with it. And and I don't mean okay with it like, hey, I don't care. I mean like, hey, I don't wanna die at all, but I also know that I can die. And if I do die, whether that means they're going to heaven or Valhalla or they're just going to go into the nothingness of atheism, whichever one of those things, they're okay with it. They, they accept that fact. So I don't think it matters what their belief system is as long as they've come to a point that they're not scared, horrified of dying. The advantage that he's talking about, is there an advantage or a liability in a team setting? The advantage goes to the person that's like, hey, I might die, that's okay. Being afraid of death, I think, from what I've seen, is a bit of a disadvantage because now you're worried about something else and it's not a little something. If you're afraid of dying and you're in combat, that's a huge freaking thing weighing on you. It's, it's gotta be a nightmare. It's gotta be horrible. I mean, you're going into combat and you're scared of dying. You're going into combat, there's a good chance you're gonna die. If that's what you're worried about, it's gonna be a problem. I mean, for me, worrying about uh, my guys dying was a horrible burden. I I wasn't worried about me, and if I had to worry about me and my guys, ugh, I can't even, I can't imagine what that would be like. It would be a huge disadvantage. I've seen guys that I could tell were scared of dying, and when you're scared of dying, it really distracts you from being able to do your job effectively because you're worried about dying, and you're making decisions based on your fears. And here's the worst part about this, in my personal opinion, if you're scared of dying, the way you act will be less aggressive and show less initiative and the less initiative you have and the more you hesitate, the, the higher chance you have of dying. So that's another thing. That's like a mental trick for Echo Charles. Mm. Hey, if I don't wanna die, the best thing I could do is be aggressive. Mm. So I will live longer. I will take action. So that, that's w- what I think about this. I think that there are atheists in foxholes and the, and the atheists will take care of their friend as much as the Christian will and take risks one way or the other as long as the atheist isn't scared of dying. And the Christian and the Jew and the pagan, the whoever they are, it depends on what their fear 
of death is and if they accept it or not. That's my opinion. All right, next question. Jocko Echo. I've been training jujitsu for about a year and received my blue belt a couple of months ago. Congratulations. I've been a solid blue belt at my academy, Mm -hmm. even giving higher belts some trouble on occasion. Recently, I visited another gym and got absolutely smashed by every blue belt there and even had some trouble with a few of their white belts. Oh, dang. Yeah, that's real. Uh, After... After this, I put some serious thought into switching academies, but I know it's going to be, it's going to alienate me from my friends at my current spot. Would appreciate your input on how to proceed. Okay. There's a bunch of things that could be going on here. Yes. Quite frankly. Uh, you could be at a weak school. That, that is possible. Mm-hmm. The other school could be sandbagging. Where people don't get their blue belt for three years, yeah. right? That that could that could happen. Oh, yeah. Like the white belts are there smashing you yeah. because they've been training for a year and a half and they're still a white belt because the instructor's you know is a slow promoter or is straight up sandbagging. The other thing it could be is people go psycho when you go and visit new gyms. <laughs> You're fresh meat. You might as well put a target on your back. And so as hard as you train with your friends, which I know you train hard, but these people are actually trying to beat you with malicious intent. Um, It could be that you are very used to the styles that you use and that your school uses and this other school that you went to has some things that you don't know how to deal with yet and none of your training partners know how to, that your training partners don't typically do. Like you roll in and they're really good at spider guard. You roll in and they're really good at De La Hiva and people in your school aren't doing De La Hiva or they're not doing spider guard and you're getting just crushed by them because you've never seen it yet or you haven't, you've seen it but maybe you don't really train with it at a high level. Um, it could be that you need to compete because you've never competed before and you don't know where your holes in your game. It could be that you need to step up your training and you, maybe you're only doing a couple rounds or whatever or people aren't going hard. I think the thing to do here possibly is talk to your instructor and be like, and again, I don't know what the sensitivities here are because you know we don't want to be the crunch, which is, I I shouldn't even say that. In the old days, if you trained at one school and you went to another school, you were a crunch, which is the, the, it comes from a soap opera in Brazil. And it's like a person who is a traitor, Mm -hmm. disloyal. A disloyal person called a crunch. So you don't want to be a crayonchi, right? You want to stick with your team. But you should talk to your team because that's weird that you went and got completely smashed by um, other people. Mm-hmm. So I would talk to the instructor and be like, and you don't have to say like, hey, I got smashed. You can say, hey, I went to this other school. I trained with these guys. Say, hey, what about this? The guy did this to me. A guy did this to me. A guy passed my guard. I couldn't get, I couldn't recover guard. I would explain what happened and I would kind of pay attention to how the instructor reacts. Because the instructor might be like, well, that's not real jujitsu or mm-hmm. something like that. Yeah. Or the instructor might be like, okay, explain to me what happened. Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah, you know what? This is called spider guard. I haven't really addressed it because, you know, we're going to be doing that in the next three months. Um, or this is the De La Hiva and I have a bad knee, so I haven't been showing it lately. Whatever, like whatever. He may give you an actual reason. He may make excuses. He may give you answers. He may be like, oh, you got... Oh, you got held down in side control? Cool. Let's spend the next week working on side control escapes. And he shows you how to escape side control and it's good. And you start, you know, you get better. Yeah. I would maybe, you know, so I would talk to your instructor, kind of explain what happened. Now, again, I don't know if you're going to like get in trouble because you went to another school. Mm. The other thing to think of is like some schools 
have different goals. Yeah. Right? Some schools are there because they want to compete in jiu-jitsu. Some schools are there because they want to teach good self-defense. Some schools are there because they want to have um, a strong kids program. Some schools are there because it's good fitness to mix in with some other things. So there's a bunch of different reasons that schools exist. Mm-hmm. And your school might be a school that people want to learn, you know, pretty much, hey, we, you know, there's a bunch of people here that we kind of want to learn about jujitsu, mm-hmm. you know, and want to be able to defend ourselves if we need to. Mm-hmm. And that's sort of the prevailing attitude amongst the students. Yeah. And if that's the case, maybe you should go to a different school because it sounds like you want to be able to smash people mm-hmm. on the mats of justice, <laughs> which is an entirely understandable thing. <laughs> so I might ask some questions. Um, I might try going back to that other school a couple more times and see, and maybe ask them some questions too. Like, hey man, what's going on? How long you been training? And the guy's like, Oh, I'm a blue belt. Yeah, I've been training for nine years or whatever. Yeah. You know, there are some blue belts like that. They've been training for five years, six uh, years, or they wrestled at freaking Iowa, <laughs> right? And they're like throwing you around like a rag doll. No, bro. it's weird how how what belt you are like has that much psychological influence on like when you train. You know, mm-hmm. like if you're a like how you said like you're let's say you're a purple belt, whatever. And then you get this white belt come in, and you, you know you've seen all the videos. Right. How if implying that if you're a black belt, you can beat this big bodybuilder mm. dude. You know, you remember those old school yeah, ones, yeah. Pedro Sauer. Pedro Sauer. Um, and then so you go on the thing and you're like, I'm no white belt. I'm, I'm, I'm not a black belt. I'm a purple belt. And this guy's no huge bodybuilder, dude. He's just kind of bigger than me. But mm-hmm. he's a white belt. Doesn't know nothing, whatever. And then he puts it on you. Then you're like. You question your purple belt. <laughs> you, you're making up scenarios and you're like, what's up with this guy making it? It just mess. It can mess with you yeah. like that. That um, the school's goals mm. like I, th- it depends. Obviously, we don't know the details of the whole scenario, but schools that that train for competition or whatever, like that's a very that's a real thing. Distinct they, environment. Yeah. Yeah. So they're like, hey, you know, like our school. um, yeah, we'd like to encourage co- competition and the IBJJF, which is, I think, as far as I know, still one of the bigger bodies of as far as competition goes. They you can't be a blue belt. You can't progress in belts under two years. So if you've been training for one year, it doesn't matter how good you are. You cannot compete as a blue. belt. Yeah, that's interesting, too. I just noticed that. Good point. Been training for about a year and received my blue belt a couple months ago. So yeah. this guy got his blue belt quick, Pretty quick. Yeah, that's that's. That's interesting. Yeah. That's interesting. That could indicate that this guy's a badass, yeah. right? And it's also no surprise when you go and get, because you can have a blue belt that's been training for three years, yeah. right? Took him a year and a half to get his blue belt, and then he's been training for another year and a half. This dude's three-year blue belt, yeah. and he's feeling like a purple belt. Yeah. For sure, like a purple belt. Yeah. And now you're surprised you're getting smashed by this dude? Now, yeah. the white belt thing is a little interesting. Like, getting smashed by white belts, and he say? Even had trouble with a few of their white belts. Okay, same thing. I'm a white belt, but I'm in here freaking training like a maniac, and I might get my blue belt. Like, I've been training for a year and a half, and I'm a white belt. Right. And you've been training for a year, and you're a blue belt. Less than a year, you get a blue belt. So there's some discrepancies there. Because fundamentally, at a root level, whoever's been training longer kind of wins. Right? Now, Okay, you train eight yeah, times a week sure. and I train two times a week. Yes, we get it. But fundamentally, good baseline, yeah. yeah, you're huge, I'm tiny. Okay, there's a, you know, I wrestled, you did, whatever the case may be. There are, there are variables that can, that, can, that can impact that statement. Yeah. But fundamentally, whoever's been training longer is going to win. Yes. 
And so if you've grown with white belts that have been training longer than you, they're probably going to win. Yeah. And blue belts that have been training longer with you are definitely going to win. Yeah. And in most schools, unless you have this massive school, which there's only a handful of massive schools, but like most schools, you're going to be training with the same amount of people. And say like, let's say you got like 15, 20 people that you train with mm-hmm. very consistently. That's a lot of training partners too, by the yeah. way. It's more, it's probably going to be more like eight mm-hmm. that you're constantly training with. Yeah. And that goes up and down the belt. So you're going to be used to them. And just how, how you mentioned, they're kind of used to your moves. You're used to their moves. Not to mention the psychological hierarchy that always exists mm. where it's like, hey, yeah, we're both blue belts, but I have established myself. Where was that psychological hierarchy today when you stuck your freaking finger in my eye? Uh, I was trying, trying to choke me. I was trying to diminish <laughs> the psychological hierarchy. Yeah, I think I bit you too, by the way. No, you bit me. Well, no, you freaking forced your hand into my mouth trying to... Uh, Trying to guillotine me. Yeah. yeah. What's good for the goose is good for the for the gander. Okay. Nonetheless, <laughs> it exists is what I'm saying. That 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 psychological kind of hierarchy, you know. And so that can establish you a little bit more. I'm not saying it does, but it can. So mm-hmm. now you know kind of where you stand. I'm the blue belt here. Sure, there might be one, maybe two other blue belts that kind of get the better of me, maybe tap me out. But I'm a pretty solid blue belt. I'm a you know, I've been training for a year. Whatever. I'm a solid blue belt. Even that's actually what he said. I, I have been, mm-hmm. solid, I've been solid a solid blue belt. Yeah. And so in your environment, that's where you get higher belts. I'm in trouble too. That's also hard to interpret because sometimes exactly. I've let all kinds of people do all kinds of crazy things to yes. me. And they might think, dude, juggle's not that good for a black belt. Yeah, I do, it's I like do I literally good. let you pass my guard and get mount and put an arm lock on me and then I escape. But you right. almost got me in your mind. Yeah. So and that could be happening too. Even you telling me that you, you the higher belt will never tell the lower belt that. Yeah, yeah. Or we'll just say very rarely say like, yeah. oh, I was going easy on you. Like that's not a thing, yeah, yeah, like yeah. a good thing to say. So most people, most higher belts won't do that. No. So there's no, technically there's no real way. Indicator, of there's no real indicator. Yeah. So you could, in your mind, you'd be like, even sometimes I give higher belts. It's kind of like, I'll yeah. have a good day and I almost got that guy. He's a yeah. brown belt, I almost got him kind of thing. Reality, in your mind. that guy's just having fun. Yeah, but it's all training. Because it's so boring training with a blue belt. Like, And he's like, you know what, dude, just go ahead and pass my guard. Yeah. Okay, put the arm triangle on. Oh yeah, guess what? Here's how I escape. That could be almost the case. Almost got yes. him, exactly. giving you a hard time. <laughs> exactly right. But in his mind, you know, of course, like it's a different experience, you know? So it's kind of like, hey, I'm doing like pretty good when, you know, the higher belt might be just letting you train or whatever, letting you, what do you call it? I'm letting you work, mm. right? That's the, the expression. So there could be that going on. And then just like how you said, which was like, really, this is important where when you're a newcomer, you're a visitor to the yeah, gym. And you. unless you're a white belt, yeah, then yeah. they're like, oh, welcome, you know, bro, blue belt. And I don't know what the circumstances are. Maybe you came with a friend. You don't even need to know the circumstances. <laughs> you roll in with that blue belt blue on belt the other blue belts. You're, free. you're just oh, yeah. getting the shark tank, oh, right? Yeah. In the shark cage. You know, and That's it, what's it, happening. Really? When you really think about it, blue belt might be the worst the belt. Worst. I think it is the worst to have as yeah. a visitor. Yeah, at least as a purple belt, you come in with some knowledge that maybe yeah. you could offer. Yeah. Blue belt, you're not offering no, no knowledge. No. Te- no. Typically, no, you know? they don't even want to know. They want to smash you. Yeah, you're a good test. <laughs> you're like fresh meat in the water. Exactly. You're gonna get chewed up. Exactly, so that right. could happen too. And that goes for the white belts as well, where it's like, oh, visitor blue belt. Oh, I'm gonna try to take this guy down. Show my instructor that I smash yeah. guys oh, from yeah, other places. Yeah, purple belt oh, over here. I got that yeah. blue belt, but I'm ready for the look what I did to that. That guy came into our school <laughs> dojo storm. There's a freaking dojo storm, and we I handled it, boss. <laughs> I handled it, professor. I got your back. I will protect the, the hallowed ground of our mats from Bruh. other blue belt invaders. It's so true. Like, okay, yeah. and here's the thing. We're over here talking like th- this is just some huge, massive thing. I'm saying 
this is the attitude straight up. This attitude yeah. right here d- exists among yeah. a, like pretty much for everyone too. It just depends on how strong that attitude is. Mm-hmm. Like it exists, mm-hmm. whether you, whether you behave on it or not. Okay, that's a different thing, but it's there. So that's that's a critical part I think mm-hmm. of this little equation. So taking everything into consideration. I don't know what you're going to do. I mean, find out more about yeah, it, whatever. I'd, I'd just around. keep training, I'd man. Keep tra- just keep definitely training. keep training. Maybe try that other school a couple more times, see what the deal is. Maybe they're instructing better, you know. Maybe you talk to your other friends at your other place and be like, hey, guys, I went to this other place and it was freaking good to go and they all smashed me and I feel like maybe we're missing out on some stuff. Or, you know, have some conversations. Try not to burn any bridges. Try not to be a crouch. But loyalty goes both ways. You're, you know, peop- your instructor needs to teach you the best stuff. Yeah. Your training partners need to give it to you and train hard with you. Yeah. So right on. I think that's it for now. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for supporting the cause. If you need supplements, chocofuel.com. If you need gear, clothing, boots, originusa.com. You can represent on the path, jockostore.com. Got a bunch of books. You know them. Get some if you want some. Leadership Consulting at echelonfront.com. On the interwebs, Echoes at Echo Charles. I am at Jocko Willink. Thank you for joining us in the revolutionary world. And I know we talked about revolution today. We're hoping that one doesn't take place. But if it does, we got your back on the underground where we will always remain free. And until next time, this is Echo and Jocko.